The Stream of Time. Hello, and welcome back to the history podcast, The Stream of Time. I'm your host, Elliot the Historian, and this episode, we leave the Roman Empire. Our destination, ancient Greece. Today we know the brilliant Athenian playwright Aeschylus as just that, a brilliant playwright. This is the man that we know to have written the great trilogy and tragedy of Orestes, the Oresteia. If you haven't read the Oresteia, which is comprised of the plays Agamemnon, the Libation Bearers, and the Eumenides, you should. These plays represent the beginning of Western drama as we know it today, and their message, like so many other great works of art and literature, remind us of the human condition. Aeschylus's extant plays are still relevant, well-known, and frequently read today, 2,500 years after they were written. I say all this because it may surprise you to know that Aeschylus and many of his contemporaries did not consider his plays to be his greatest achievement. What did Aeschylus and his contemporaries consider to be his greatest deed? Let's look at the epitaph written on his grave. Beneath this stone lies Aeschylus, son of Euphorion, the Athenian, who perished in the wheat-bearing land of Gala. Of his noble prowess, the grove of Marathon can speak, and the long-haired Persian knows it well. Aeschylus's epitaph doesn't even mention that he was a playwright, but half of his epitaph is devoted to his time in the grove of Marathon. By now you should be able to guess what the topic of this episode is. Today we'll talk about one of the most pivotal battles in Western history. Today we'll be talking about the Battle of Marathon, 490 BC. The Battle of Marathon is as well known as it is misunderstood. It was popularized in Western culture in the first modern Olympic Games in 1896, as Olympics organizers were looking for different ways to bring back the theme of ancient Greece. The Battle of Marathon was an obvious choice, since there is a 26-mile run interwoven into the story of the battle. A 26-mile run that could easily be used as a competitive event. We'll get to that run, but we have a lot to cover first, starting with the rise of the Persian Achaemenid Empire. In the 550s BC, the brilliant Persian leader Kurush, known to Western history as Cyrus the Great, rebelled against the dominant power in Persia at the time, the Medes. Through conquest and political savvy, he created a large empire that we call the Achaemenid Empire, named after Cyrus's 7th century ancestor, Achaemenes. What started as a fairly large empire extended from part of modern-day Turkey on the western edge to modern-day Pakistan in the east, only grew over the next half-century under Cyrus and his successors. By 500 BC, it additionally extended as far as Egypt and, crucial to our story, parts of modern-day Greece. More to the point, while not all Greeks were under Persian rule, many Greek cities had fallen to the Persians and paid tribute to the Persian rulers. It's important to remember, this was long before there was a nation of Greece. The Greek geopolitical and cultural situation is complicated at this point of history and bears some further explanation. Greek, or Hellene, described a culture and a language, a language that itself was broken into quite different dialects, such as Doric, the branch that would be spoken by the Spartans, and Ionic, the branch that would eventually lead to the language spoken by the Athenians. The various Greek subcultures generally lived in city-states, a sort of mini-nation 
that's centered around a city such as Sparta or Athens or Thebes or Corinth. The various city-states squabbled a lot, and while the Greeks in general tended to believe in the ideology of self-rule, that ideology was often bent when it could suit the various city-state that had dominance. And the details of what self-rule meant were definitely not agreed upon by the various city-states. In 500 BC, the up-and-comer city-state Athens was trying a very new experiment, a complete democracy. Now, the Athenian lawgiver Solon is rightfully given credit for bringing democracy to Athens through his reforms in the early 6th century BC, not too long after he was chosen archon, a high-level magistrate in Athenian politics, in 594 BC. But Athenian democracy was still restricted to a certain class until the reforms of the Athenian lawmaker Cleisthenes in 508 BC. His reforms brought true democracy to Athens, the likes of which we don't even see in modern-day nations. Modern-day America, for example, while often referred to as a democracy, is actually a republic whose highest-level leader is voted in through a convoluted electric system. Cleisthenes' reforms were numerous, and he even instituted a sort of randomization of voting groups that would prevent any chance of gaming the system. The system was a radical change from anything that had come before, and the other Greek city-states wanted nothing to do with it. In fact, it's probably fair to say that many of the city-states, if not all, wanted to see it fail. The idea of democracy was just too strange and far-fetched. One thing the various Greek city-states could agree on is that none of the Greeks liked the idea of Greek city-states being under Persian control. Part of this agreement was a result of the Greeks' love of the idea of the self-rule of the city-state. But part of this agreement was because the writing was on the wall. If the Achaemenid Empire was content to have some Greek city-states as part of its empire, why wouldn't it absorb more? So when some Persian-held Greeks chose to revolt in 498 BC, the Athenians sent soldiers to help, hoping that this would turn the Persian tide back. This was known as the Ionian Revolt, named after the area of Ionia, which is the western coast of modern-day Turkey. The revolt held up for four years, but ultimately failed in 494 BC. Cities involved were treated far more ruthlessly than they were before the revolt, and in many cases, the Greek populations were removed through either mass murder or forced migration into other cities in the Persian Empire. The once great city of Miletus is one such victim. Miletus was a prosperous city and is known for being the origin city of Greek philosophical tradition. The Milesian school, which to be clear was a school of thought, not an actual physical school, consisted of the earliest Greek philosophers, such as the 6th century BC philosophers Thales, Anaximander, and Anaximenes. While more well-known Greek philosophers such as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle did not share the Milesian philosophers' ideas, it was the Milesians who set the tradition of Greek philosophy that would lead to these more famous philosophers. But Miletus wasn't the only city that had risen in revolt. Another area known as Thracian Chersonese, modern-day Gallipoli, had participated in the revolt. The area had been under the vassal rule of a man named Miltiades, it had been established as an Athenian colony by Miltiades' uncle around 555 BC. In 520 BC, Miltiades took over as ruler, 
But in 513 BC, the Persians came in with a large army and forced them to submit as a vassal territory. I'm pointing out these dates to show that all of this happened in Miltiades' lifetime. He probably never got used to the idea of his territory being a vassal of a larger empire, and it was because of this that Miltiades participated actively in the Ionian Revolt. Shortly after the Ionian Revolt failed in 493 BC, Miltiades fled to Athens. We're going to leave Miltiades there for now, but keep him in mind. He's going to play an important part in our story later. The failure of the Ionian Revolt made the Athenian position worse because now the Persians had an excuse to go after Athens. If there was any question as to whether the Persians would try to extend their empire as far as Athens before, it was now all but assured. The Persian king Darius I would be able to use the fact that the Athenians helped the Ionians revolt as a reason to absorb Athens under his control. And that's exactly what Darius did. In 492 BC, Darius sent an expedition to Greece. Greece got lucky. The fleet was destroyed in a storm, and the campaign met an early end. But now Athens knew that it was just a matter of time until the Persians mounted another expedition, and the Athenians couldn't count on a storm saving the city again. In 490 BC, Darius sent another fleet, and sure enough, this one made it far further into Greece. By July of 490 BC, his army reached the city of Eritrea. Eritrea was another city that had provided support to the Ionian Revolt along with Athens. Darius put the city under siege. A note about siege warfare. Movies often depict siege warfare with attacks against walls, catapults, fiery arrows, and other spectacles. While these types of fights happened on occasion, the fact is that siege warfare often involved doing nothing other than surrounding a city or fortress and cutting the city off from supplies. In other words, starving it into submission. Eritrea was under siege for six days when the city was betrayed by two Eritreans who opened the gates in the hopes of getting clemency from the Persians for their own families. I'm pointing this out because this sort of disunity plagued the ancient Greeks both at the intercity level and within the cities themselves. The Persians knew this and knew that they could exploit the disunity to their own success. It worked in Eritrea, and the Persians expected to use it in Athens. Athens especially, as there was a sizable group of aristocrats who were very unhappy with the still new, 18 years old, democracy that was being practiced in Athens. Keep this in mind as we move forward. So the Persians captured Eritrea, removed the Greek citizens, and subsequently burned the city. Modern Eritrea is about 97 kilometers, 60 miles, from Athens today, a little over an hour's drive. Obviously, the Persians didn't have cars, and there were no roads from ancient Eritrea to ancient Athens. But I tell you this to illustrate just how close the Persians were to Athens at this point. This was a short distance, even taking into account that the Persians had a large army to move, and no roads on which to move it. Want to guess what was between Eritrea and Athens? That's right, the plain of Marathon. In early August, the Persians crossed the Euboean Channel by ships and landed their boats at the Bay of Marathon along the northern side. The landing point the Persians chose was 26 miles from Athens, a six or seven hour march at most, and was a strategically good position for the Persians. As the Persians far outnumbered the Athenians, 
and fully expected to overwhelm Athenian forces on an open field of battle with sheer numbers, if nothing else. The Athenians knew they were in trouble, and a few things happened at this point. The Greek runner Philippides, also known as Phaedipides, was dispatched to Sparta to appeal for assistance. By foot, he covered the 140 miles from Athens to Sparta in a mere two days. The Spartans refused to help for at least another six days. They cited religious reasons which, while legitimate, it's also worth noting that the Spartans in general both didn't like the Athenians and tended to avoid going too far on campaign out of Sparta when they could avoid it. So Phaedipides ran back. Meanwhile, the Athenians were divided. About half wanted to hole up in Athens behind the walls and hope that Athens could withstand the Persian siege. Remember Miltiades? He was the man that was driven out of his area of Thracian Chersonese by the Persians after actively participating in the Ionian Revolt. By now, Miltiades was in Athens, and it was Miltiades that proposed meeting the Persians on the battlefield. His logic was sound. While everyone knew that the Athenians would be seriously outnumbered by the Persians, I'll get to numbers in a moment, everyone also knew that the Athenians couldn't trust each other and that holding up in Athens would very likely see a similar fate to Eritrea, seeing betrayal from someone internally. Remember, a lot of citizens were still unhappy with the new democracy. Miltiades also argued that the Athenian soldier, the hoplite, was better armed and armored than the average Persian soldier, with each hoplite having heavy armor over the torso, a helmet, a large shield, armored greaves on the shins, a javelin, and a sword. The Persians, by contrast, were lightly armored, or in some cases, wore no armor at all. Miltiades, it should also be noted, was trusted by the war council, as he had by now gained quite a bit of experience, not only fighting against the Persians, but fighting with them, as he had to provide some military support to the Persians when his city was a Persian vassal. He was part of the ten tribal generals who were assigned to advise the Polemarchos, or War Archon. It was Miltiades' arguments that ultimately convinced this War Archon named Kalimachos to meet the Persians on the field of battle. This decision was made on a hill on the south side of the plain of Marathon, a position that could easily be evacuated to Athens or used to attack from. While the Greek historian Herodotus inflated the numbers, modern estimates of the Persian army are about 25,000 foot soldiers, 1,000 cavalry, horse-backed soldiers, and about 100,000 non-soldiers crewing the ships that could be used as reserves in a pinch. The Athenians were far outnumbered, and when they eventually did take the field, numbered about 10,000. The Athenians were also assisted by about 600 soldiers from the city of Plataea, another city that was in close proximity to Athens. Whatever the exact numbers, the Greeks were clearly far outnumbered by the Persians. Also, the Greek soldiers were soldier citizens. In other words, a Greek soldier lost was a farmer lost or someone vital to Athenian operations. Both sides, now committed, made preparations, then waited. The Athenians, for their part, were waiting for Spartan aid that would never arrive. They set up lines of trees on the battlefield with branches still sticking out to prevent the Persian cavalry from getting any sort of speed. The Persians were also in no hurry, and did not want to attack the Athenians when it literally would have been an uphill battle. 
As the Athenians had set up camp in the aforementioned hills on the south side of the Marathon Plain. The Persian commanders knew that they could also pack up and sail directly to Athens, as Athens was now completely undefended. In the middle of the night of August 10th to 11th, the Athenian commanders received terrible news. The Persians had started loading the cavalry and some of the army back on the ships. It was clear that the Persians had planned to sail around the Athenians, both putting them in a position behind the Athenians and also cutting the Athenians off from the city of Athens. Again, the Athenian camp was divided. Half of the camp wanted to return to Athens to defend it, and half wanted to attack the Persians. The Athenians, probably with Miltiades as the tiebreaker again, decided on the latter. They made the decision to attack the Persians. They had a few things going for them. For one, the cavalry was on the ships and could not easily be moved back off. This would give the Athenians a small period of time that they could attack the Persians without threat of the cavalry surrounding them. It would also take longer for the ships to arrive at Athens by boat than by foot, 12 hours by boat as opposed to 6 by foot. In other words, there would be no better time to attack the Persians than this 4 or 5 hour period. If the Persians could be defeated quickly, the Athenians could quickly make it back to Athens before the Persian ships arrived. The Athenians lined up for battle at dawn. Up until now, Greek battle formations were simple. Eight lines of men, each heavily armored and holding a shield that would create a sort of shield wall, where every man partially covered the man to his left with his shield. This grouping was called a phalanx. Battles were often just phalanx on phalanx pushing matches, with the victors being the ones that pushed the opposing phalanx back. The Greeks were far outnumbered by the Persians, even with part of the Persian army on ships, so they knew that this sort of warfare wouldn't work. The Persians could even bring up longer lines of soldiers, which in battle could spell catastrophe, as a longer Persian line would be able to wrap around the Greeks and attack from the unprotected sides and rear. The Greeks had another problem. The Persians had a lot of skilled archers. A slow march across the plain would be devastating as the Greeks could be cut down by hails of arrows in a sort of death zone around the middle of the battlefield. It was Miltiades again that recognized these threats and came up with brilliant counters. To deal with the longer Persian lines, he made the standard phalanx longer, but less deep, preventing the Persians from being able to wrap around the Greeks and counting on the better armored Greeks to hold the lines. As for the archers, Miltiades came up with another simple plan. When the Greeks reached the outer range of arrows, they would break into a hard run. He risked disillusion of the phalanx formation, but it was worth it as it mitigated the otherwise serious archer threat by simply outrunning the problem. While these countermeasures may seem simple, they were unheard of at the time. As I mentioned earlier, Greek combat was very simple and often little more than a violent pushing match. Miltiades' ideas were extreme and exceptional for the time, and in hindsight, changed the course of history. Even more amazing, these sort of tactics wouldn't be repeated for over a hundred years at the Battle of Leuctra, which resulted in a Theban victory against the Spartans. The Athenian army was also divided into three wings, a right, left, and center. This allowed for more flexibility than a single line would, as individual wings could execute separate maneuvers. 
Probably at around 8 a.m. on August 11th, horns were sounded and the Athenians started marching. As planned, as the Greeks reached arrow range, they broke into a run, shields held overhead to protect against arrow fire. They also held their long javelins forward, and when the Athenians hit the Persians, they hit hard, as they were far more heavily armored. The Persians fought hard, but as I mentioned, they were very lightly armored, with wicker shields being the most common shield. The center wing of the Greeks saw the most trouble and at some points seemed close to falling to the Persians and was almost pushed back. But while the center was holding, the right and left wings of the Greeks managed to push their opposing Persian formations back. This meant that the Greeks were in a position to do exactly what they feared the Persians were going to do, surround the Persians from the sides. As the center wing was fighting a desperate battle, the right and left wings closed in on the Persians from the sides. From then, the Persian lines quickly routed and ran back towards the ships. The battle was effectively won by the Greeks. The Greeks pursued the Persians back to the ships, and the Persians fled. But now the Athenians had a problem. Many Persian ships had already embarked for Athens, and the Persians they had just routed had also escaped on some of the ships, intending to also head to Athens. Athens was still undefended, and even though the Greeks had won the battle, there was still a danger that they could lose their city. While Herodotus is an important figure in Greek history and the writing of history in general, we still have to be careful about some of his stories. Herodotus's story upon which the modern marathon is based, in which the aforementioned Pheidippides runs 26 miles back to Athens to proclaim Athenian victory, then drops dead, is probably apocryphal. What's fascinating is that the myth is less interesting than the truth. The truth is that the whole Athenian army ran back to Athens over the course of the next six hours. When the Persian ships arrived within sight of Athens, the Athenian soldiers were already lined up, preventing a Persian landing and putting an end to this stressful day. So let's look at the aftermath. This was not the end of the Persian Wars. They would last another 41 years until 449 BC. In fact, the entire Athenian population, healthy enough to leave, would have to evacuate Athens in 481 BC and watch their city get sacked by the Persians before a naval victory by the Athenians at the Battle of Salamis in 480 BC. The Athenians, for their part, saw the Battle of Marathon as a high point of pretty much anything. Aeschylus's epitaph omitting his playwriting but mentioning his participation at the battle is a great example. But what's important about the Battle of Marathon is how much was at stake. It was abundantly clear what the Persians did to Greek city-states that fought in rebellion. Remove the Greek population and spread them among the large Persian Empire and effectively burn the city down. This no doubt would have happened to Athens had the Athenians lost. And it's clear that if Athens made any other choice than to fight and fight the way they did, they would have lost. Athens would have been wiped off the map which means we can say with certainty that we wouldn't see some enormously important Western influences that were developed in the 5th century BC Athens. The list is jaw-dropping. The democracy experiment would have been wiped out 18 years after its inception. Greek drama with such playwrights that we still read today, such as Sophocles, Euripides, Aristophanes, and of course, Aeschylus. Athenian philosophers 
who were fantastically influential to Western philosophy, such as Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, would never have been born, much less provided their input to Western philosophy. Basically, Western history would play out very differently. I'm pointing this out because there are rare moments in history that we can say definitively that things would have been completely different if this particular event swung a different direction. This is one of those events. That being said, it's easy to fall into the trap of glamorizing one culture over another. The Greeks erroneously thought themselves superior to the Persians, and many Western historians have made that mistake. While I'm asserting that things would have been different, I also don't want to make the mistake of making it seem like things would have been ultimately worse for history had the Persians won. But they would have been very different, and it is staggering to reflect on the list of things we wouldn't have. I'll end this with a quote by the 20th century philosopher Alfred North Whitehead describing the impact of Plato on Western philosophy. He said, The safest general characterization of the European philosophical tradition is that it consists of a series of footnotes to Plato. Who knows what direction Western philosophy would have taken had Plato never existed. Thanks for listening, and see you next time on The Stream of Time.